This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. Welcome, everybody, to our year-end podcast. I am lucky, again, to have my producer, Daniel Pinitz, here with me today. And we are going to spend a little time talking about the things that we looked at last year that were the most interesting to us. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Lish. How's it going? It's going well. So, Daniel, I've dragged you on here with me. I know usually you are off mic (laughs) and making everyone else sound good. Mm -hmm. So today you're going to make you sound good. And just to have a little back and forth about the things that are still sitting with us after having done an episode every month in 2023. Are you ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready to go. Let's do this. And just so you know, you don't have to drag me. It's my pleasure to be here with you. This is going to be great. Let's go. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. We are here to tell pro bono stories, stories that we hope inspire you to take your own pro bono legal work to the next level. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken. I've worked in civil rights, criminal defense, and civil legal aid, but now I'm a principal at the Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy and a faculty fellow at PLI. And I love getting to talk with volunteer lawyers and nonprofit legal projects around the country about the pro bono work that matters to them. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. So when I thought about this year, the first thing that just continues to sit with me all the time is that lawyers today can help right historical wrongs that others have tried to forget. And and that, for me, really comes from the very first episode we did this year about Bruce's Beach, which is possibly, I love all my children equally, but also (laughs) the Bruce's Beach episode is probably my favorite from the year. And so just to kick us off, let's listen to a clip of George Fathery talking about his own journey as he read the newspaper stories about L.A. County wanting to do something about the way that land had been taken from the Bruce family in the 1920s for explicitly racist reasons. So it wasn't until I read that the county had wanted to voluntarily return the property. When I heard that, I had two thoughts. My immediate thought was, hallelujah, this is amazing. It's about time. You know, thank goodness. And it was one of real kind of excitement and jubilation. My second thought was, holy shit, this has never been done before. There's going to be a bunch of folks who don't want to see this happen, right? What I thought was the same types of folks that didn't want to see Charles and Willow run a successful kind of black business catering to black beachgoers back in the 1920s. Unfortunately, we've still got some of those folks around today, and they're not going to want to see this property return. They're not going to want to see this precedent. And so my second thought was, this has got to be done exactly right, it struck me at a professional level in terms of being a very complex real estate transaction, which is really 
what my training over the past 15 years has been. And so when I heard that the county intended to give the land back, at that point, I made the decision, this is something I've got to be involved with because I want to make sure it's done exactly right. So, Daniel, this one's this one's huge for me in a bunch of different ways. One of them is that I grew up in Southern California. Bruce's Beach is about an hour south of L.A., and I grew up on the coast about an hour north of L.A. And, look, nobody ever talked to me about this kind of explicit material racism by the government against Black people in the early 20th century. No one talked about it. If you had said to me, KKK, when I was in high school in Camarillo, California, I would have said to you knowingly, oh, yeah, the South. There was some bad stuff going on in the South. And so this episode sort of blew my mind because I had to confront real stuff that happened where I grew up and confront the fact that I didn't know anything about it. And then simultaneously get excited that somebody was doing something about it 100 years later in 2023. I agree with you. It was a really great way to start off the year. Super interesting episode. And that was a story that had been reported on a lot of major outlets as well, from what I remember. I think we saw articles in the New York Times, the Washington Post. So, you know, from a production perspective, it was kind of interesting to do. I mean, all of our stories are very interesting and they're very rich, but we don't often do stories that coincide with something that's happening in the news at the moment, right? This is true. And so that was that was actually kind of a cool little part of doing that episode. Yeah, I remember George being such an interesting character on his own, and he had such an interesting career path even leading up to doing the Bruce's Beaches case. I remember he worked on things like advocacy for Holocaust vi- victims, disability rights. He did wasn't there a story where he he worked with a dance company? A lot of super, super interesting things as part of his trajectory. And we had all of this, this material from him talking about his, his career that we actually made a separate little bonus episode that was kind of just talking about all of those things, kind of as a way to show, to highlight different things that you can do in your career. Yes. I, I have to say, talking to George was probably the very first time in my entire career that I thought to myself, ooh, real estate law. That sounds fun. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. You get some of these guests and they're super passionate about what they do. I mean, I feel that all the time. They're so passionate and engaged in what they do that it makes you super interested in it as well. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, Daniel, what's something that stuck with you from the episodes that we did this year? In the episode that we did called Supporting Artists Through Pro Bono, We talked to Amy Lehman and Jordan Romanoff about ways in which pro bono lawyers can help support artists, right? And this was a super interesting episode for me because, you know, as someone who does creative pursuits like podcasting and as a non-lawyer, this one actually, even from the very beginning, was, was a super interesting topic. But before we even got to what lawyers can do to help people, to help artists, you asked a very simple question and I thought Jordan's answer was really, was really interesting. So let's just take a listen. If a lawyer isn't a former artist themselves and isn't a patron of the arts, why should they prioritize helping artists as a pro bono project? Why should a lawyer care about whether art gets created or not? My gut reaction to that is everyone is a patron of the arts, even if they don't know it. 
if you find someone who tells me they ingest nothing that is the subject of creativity, I won't believe them. They watch TV, they watch movies, they play video games, they read poetry, they read novels. All of that is arts, right? So if they enjoy what they are consuming, they should care about who's creating it. And who knows, the artist you're working with may end up creating something, you know, six years in the future that becomes your favorite television program. And if you hadn't been able to help them in this period, their career may have taken another trajectory. I love that line from Jordan. It was just so real. It was clearly something that's come up for Jordan before, right? Somebody has said, like, I don't go to Broadway. And Jordan was just ready to clarify for us how embedded creativity and consuming creativity by other people is in our lives. And again, Daniel, I know you like to be modest, but I think the listeners should know that you, in fact, are the engine behind all of the podcasts at PLI and the growing number of podcasts at PLI. And this one wouldn't exist if you hadn't come on board at PLI and been this persistent creative thinker about how we could get it done. So it makes perfect sense to me that that one uh, really hit home for you. And and I remember that it was during the strike uh, for the, at the time the writers were striking and the actors were striking too, I think. Yep. Yeah, they were. It was. uh, Hot labor summer. It gets hard to remember which ones, when they started. But, you know, I think for you, it, it was a real moment of realization about what the reality is for a lot of artists who are out there. I remember when we were doing research for that episode, we were we we stumbled upon this statistic that was that was pretty telling. And I want to get the statistic right. So <laughs> I'm going to look it up for a second. When we think about actors and about the pay scale for actors, we obviously think about big celebrities that are making millions and millions of dollars. But the reality of the situation is that 70% of all actors make less than $40,000 a year. Right. And I thought that was absolutely shocking. Like <laughs> I, 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 I still can't believe it as I'm saying it. That in itself was, was, was very, very eye-opening. But just, you know, from that clip we heard exactly, like the way that Jordan says it, it's, it's so real. It really did make me both as a producer, but also just as, like he said, as a consumer, it made me think like, oh yeah, it's so true. I mean, there are so many different things that people consume that you might not even think about. That quote from him really sort of put that in perspective. Yeah. And in fact, I'm not sure this made it into the episode, but I remember as Jordan was going through different kinds of uh, help that he's given artists, he was like, oh, jewelry makers and like intellectual property over the designs of your jewelry. Uh, Right. And obviously jewelry is art, but I don't think I had thought of it that way before. So I I was grateful to Jordan for just expanding my imagination about what counts as art and then grateful for Jordan volunteering his time to make sure that the art can get out there in the world in a way that's good for the makers. Yeah. And and also, I think the flip side, too, is once you start to think about that, you start and you start to realize how much art plays such an important role in our lives and how it's in so many places that you might not think of. Then you can start to think of what would life be like without that art? And I think that was part of his point, too, is you know, you think, oh, wow, if I didn't have these books to read or these magazine articles or even clips on the internet, which, you know, which so many people are are consuming these days, it, it really starts to paint a picture of like, wow, art really, really is important in just the daily fabric of, of your life, you know? It definitely raises the question, are cat videos art? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
probably. I mean, it depends on the cat, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, <laughs> like one day there is going to be a museum where there's that cat playing the piano. You know, the I, I, I'm I'm trying to visualize it right now. This is a podcast, and I know, so this might not translate, but. If you're listening, you probably know the meme of the cat, like with his paws playing the piano. There you go. Yeah, those are those are some startling, realistic numbers, which is why actors need access to pro bono lawyers to to get by, but both to protect their art, but also to make sure they can sustain themselves as people. Yeah, I think that the the second thing that stuck with me this year, and it's. It's going to seem simple, but it sticks with me because I think it's taken me 30 years to get to this point, is that pro bono clinics, volunteer lawyers come to the clinic that's run by a nonprofit and clients drop in. Those clinics are about helping rather than winning, and they are worth the effort. So we featured two clinics in episodes this year, one run by in-house lawyers at Amazon with the help of KNL Gates, and the other run by Legal Aid Chicago with Cat and Muchin Rosenman. And I've just had a bias. I've, I've had a bias my entire career towards taking a case and litigating it, like going to court or doing the hearing or writing the brief and seeing it through to the end. But if I'm being honest, what I really meant is I have a bias towards seeing it through to the win. Like, I like mm. winning. I say this a lot about when I'm training social workers and advocates about how to deal with lawyers. I say there's two things lawyers care about. One is winning and the second is not losing. <laughs> <laughs> it usually resonates with people. You can imagine. And so I think the reason that I had not been into or excited about clinics before is because I, I frankly, I was like, oh, it didn't give me the juice of a win. And this year broke me of that bias so that I could see that lots of people need an hour with a lawyer. Their lives will be materially improved by spending an hour with a lawyer to sort out a puzzle, understand their paperwork get a letter written. It matters and it helps and yeah, and it's worth doing. Even if you don't get the juice of a win, you know, you don't get the juice of a New York Times article about how your clients got $20 million the way that the Bruce's Beach episode did. Right. You get the juice of, you know, I made a difference in somebody's life today because I spent an hour helping them. Right. Well, I mean, I, I can imagine that, you know, you're, what you're referring to as the juice there. Another way you could look at it is is kind of just feedback, right? Like, I think part of it is that and correct me if I'm wrong, is that when you're when you are seeing a case through from the very beginning to the very end, you know, the entire trajectory of the case and you know how the whole thing plays out. And even if it's not a positive a positive outcome. And of course, everybody wants the positive outcome. And that's probably the, the juice that you're referring to, right? But it, but even if it wasn't, do you still get that feeling of, okay, well, at least I saw this thing through. I was there from the beginning to the end. Do you think that played a part in it? Because in a clinic, that's right, true. you're only there for a slice or a, a part of that entire person's journey, right? I, th I think that's definitely true. Because my first job was criminal appellate defense, and we didn't win. You just don't win much when you're doing criminal defense. and But you're absolutely right about that feeling that you saw it through to the end. And so I think what I learned this year is how to reframe my definition of what seeing it through means. And that, you know, there's still 
lots of pro bono opportunities out there for people who want to do that traditional take a case, see it through to the very end. But there are a lot of lawyers who either that's not a good fit, whether it's not a good fit for their skills, their personality, or their logistical setup that they want to contribute, they want to help, and they need a mechanism to do it. And a mechanism that helps them get over what one person called imposter syndrome, right? So hmm. here's a clip from the Amazon KNL Gates episode in Seattle, and it's Yusri Omar, Associate General Counsel at Amazon, and Shannon Frisbee, who's a partner at KNL Gates, talking about their experience with the clinic and how it made it possible for them to help. I told uh, Yusri today, I think we both had imposter syndrome a bit when we started this because I was like, I don't I don't really know this area of law. But what we learned really quickly and I would urge people to really understand this, we all have a legal education. We all have these skills. And even though it might not be, you know, our area of expertise and comfort, this this is the, the depth at which we go in a clinic or some of these projects isn't so deep that we can't get a pretty quick understanding that is really helpful to provide services to people in this space. So partially it's just having the confidence to say, I'm going to take a risk and get out there and get my hands a little dirty and figure it out. And to Shannon's point, in the very first uh, few clinics, we had KNL lawyers uh, float around. So if one of our uh, teams got stuck or um, had a question that they weren't able to navigate, uh, somebody could jump in pretty quickly and provide that support and assistance. We actually had a KNL lawyer at every table with an Amazon lawyer so that there was someone there that they felt, you know, maybe had done this before and had that experience. I think what's unique about the the Seattle project is that the relationship between Mary's Place, the shelter, and Amazon is so strong and so intertwined that Amazon put a shelter for Mary's Place into its headquarters. So I get the sense from them that even though it is a clinic model, that the lawyers are able to see the long-term impact in the community because the they are so embedded in the work of Mary's Place, the shelter, that they can have a sense. So it is a little bit different. It's pretty unique to, to, to have the shelter in the headquarters. The way that I think about clinics, as, as, as you were describing it, one of the things I was thinking is, is that it, it, in a lot of ways, reminds me of just when you do a volunteer event. So mm -hmm. I've done volunteer events here in New York City that a lot of them are, are related to food insecurity, right? So food pantry, soup kitchens, things like that. And in those cases, it's kind of similar, right? You go, somebody has done a lot of a lot of work to kind of organize this food collection event or like I said, a soup kitchen or something. And there's all this effort and time that's gone to setting up the entire structure of it. But then you, of course, need the volunteers to come in and hand out the food and do things like that. And so, you know, usually I've been the person who just comes in, one, like one of the volunteers, you come hand out food, do things like that. But yeah, you're only there for that hour or two hours or three hours. And I know it's not exactly the same, but that's kind of what I'm thinking of as you're as you were describing it. No, it's a good it's a good parallel. It's a really good parallel. So one of the other things that occurred to me is that it might also depend on the actual clinic and how the clinic itself is set up, right? 
Yes. When you go into a situation like that and you aren't seeing the entire case through, you kind of have to trust that what you're doing or the time that you're spending in that time at the clinic is is going to be uh, having an impact, right? right? And like we said, it's it's harder to see if you're if you yourself are having an impact if you're not there for the entire case or to see it through, mm -hmm. right? Right. And so in that case, a lot of times I feel like you just have to trust that the organization or the people who are setting up the clinic are doing it in a way that actually, you know, makes sense. And it makes me think of the second clinic that we featured this year, which is the school-based clinic in Chicago that I went to, which is a joint project of Legal Aid Chicago and Katten Rosenman. And it's been going on for a decade. And, and I think what you're talking about is what we see there. There's this deep sense of trust at Catton that what Legal Aid Chicago is doing is excellent legal work and is there for the long haul, right? So as we're at that clinic, Legal Aid Chicago is constantly getting into their case database and, and seeing whether they've helped this client before. They're seeing whether one of their projects can do something long-term for the client. They're, and then they're experts in the legal issue. So they have, I mean, it was unbelievable to be there. And I was there for, I want to say, six or seven hours walking around with my little tape recorder. And, you know, they just they just have answers. They they Almost nothing stumps them. And they have no idea what's going to walk in the door that night. And I think that gives the Catton lawyers an enormous sense of confidence that they are participating in something that is real. And it's hard to give you a clip that would even begin to summarize it. I think I really want people to listen to the whole episode because it was, you know, I talked about the juice of winning and that clinic. I got the juice. <laughs> I got it. I got the juice there because it was it was exciting. Everybody, we felt like a pit crew on a road race. I'm probably only saying that because I just watched Gran Turismo. But, you know, it, it felt like a pit crew and a really good one. And, and I felt the juice there. And there was one case that we got to win, right, where we the folks came in and they asked for something that would take a long time in court and was hard. And the actual answer was something simple. And we finished it that night. We I say we. I was just recording and observing. <laughs> That's how involved I got. And let, let's play a clip of people being able to do the whole case and see it to the end in that one night. A 78-year-old woman wants to become the guardian both for financial and medical issues for her 95-year-old sister. Okay. <laughs> Is the sister here? Yes. yes. They're oh, both okay. Here. They're both here. Okay. Does the sister have capacity? Yeah. Well, she she's was answering she's freely. Answering yeah. freely. She seems lucid, yeah. Could, would they settle for power of attorney instead of guardianship? I don't know. Without, if they have to give them what they need. What are they looking for? What do they say? What is I think, she I, said, well, I, asked her, I, mean, I think she wants her to make all decisions. Everything, yeah. Any kind of decision in her life. Okay, so, so medical, like, we can do power of attorney for health care and property. Power. The power of attorney uh, would definitely make sense over close. guardianship so because for guardianship, essentially, a doctor has to say that she doesn't have capacity to make decisions on her own. Um, we can do the power of attorney tonight. Yeah, so as long as she... As that that meets their needs, and especially if the older sister has capacity, then that would be the main thing that they can do legally anyway. Yeah, so you want to do that? I can... 
pull up the documents so now and start drafting those. We'll need two witnesses, so we can use you guys as witnesses, and then we'll notarize it, and it'll be good to go. Then she can send it to the bank, send it to the hospital, and have it on file. So let me pull those up, and we'll get started on it. So that, that clinic, and we mentioned in the episode that that clinic had such an impact on me that I actually signed up to do a clinic with Legal Aid Chicago. And it's been a little bit of a struggle for me. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this on the podcast, but it has been a bit of a struggle for me to figure out the right pro bono for me. Part of the reason we're very aware of how other people, you know, need ideas and, and help about what might be possible. Because as an independent consultant who doesn't carry legal malpractice insurance, I travel for work a lot, it's, it's been tricky to figure out the right fit for me. So that school clinic episode inspired me to sign up for a different Legal Aid Chicago clinic. And I went last month. It was in a church on the west side of Chicago. And I met with clients in the choir balcony. <laughs> there were various choices, but I'm so concerned about confidentiality and privacy that I was like, I want the furthest away one. And then we sat in the back row because I was nervous that the choir balcony is designed to distribute sounds. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not the best for privacy. I, it worked. It worked. But but I thought about it the whole time. And uh, you know, I'm still learning how to be a good clinic lawyer because I'm so used to the long haul. And I think they held a case for me because I know these folks and they I got there and they said, would you like to talk to somebody about a custody dispute where there is domestic violence? I was like, yes, that happens to be my specialty. No problem. Uh, well, that was just smart on their part. Yeah. If they yeah. knew, if, I mean, seriously, if you know somebody is an expert in that, why not? And you know that they're going to be there, right? Like that's. But it's that harder smart. to do the clinic if you are an expert in the issue, I think. It's one of the reasons why, and mm. it's one of the reasons why they use volunteers and experts, because the expert's going to want to take it file an appearance, do the whole case. And the volunteer is like, what is the information that I'm capable of giving well tonight? So I felt good about it, but I did spend at least an hour, maybe an hour and a half with her, which is not what you're supposed to do. Right. But I, I felt like because of my expertise, I was able to have some practical conversations with her about what was going on in court and about what sort of she could expect to have happen going forward and ways to help her frame her thinking about it that someone who wasn't an expert wouldn't have been able to do necessarily. Um, so I felt good about that one. Uh, right. The second one I met with, I knew nothing. Like there's been a lot of developments in law around expunging criminal records. I have never practiced in that area. I I have a, you know, a common citizen's understanding that expungement laws are happening. And this was somebody who had a criminal record and wanted to expunge it. That's what he was asking me for. And I, you know, I know nothing about that, but I didn't feel afraid because I knew the experts in the room knew something about it. I knew they knew a lot, actually. And so I knew that I just needed to get his papers and ask him some basic questions about what his goals were, what he was hoping for, whether there was urgency to it, and then went down to the experts 
And they were immediately able to connect him to a project at Legal Aid Chicago where other volunteer lawyers are actually doing the paperwork to Mm. expunge criminal records. Although, I also knew because of the school clinic episode that expunging records and sealing records are different things. Melissa Pachola from Legal Aid Chicago had done such a good job explaining it that I actually understood it. Later, when I was a volunteer, she started to give me the same spiel. And I said, wait, wait, I might know this. Let me see if I can accurately reflect it back to you. (laughs) I learned this on an episode of Pursuing Justice, the pro bono files. You should check it out. Exactly. Exactly. But to your point about being in that room and 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 the juice, right? Like I can understand why you felt that feeling because I felt that feeling when I was listening to it, honestly. And when we say that you were in there, you were in there in I think it's called the the attorney room. Yes, right. Yes. And so you know that's that's basically when the vault where the volunteer lawyers and the experts are all in there. They're all talking through cases, working together. We recorded all of that. And I think e- even to the point where you were sort of taking the microphone and moving it from discussion to discussion, because there's so many things happening at the same time, right? And you really captured it. And anyways, it was it was such a cool thing to hear. You really did get a sense of that energy. And you were literally in this high school in the rooms, and it was super cool to hear. I, I got to say, one of the things that absolutely shocked me about that episode was when you asked a few of the people... Who, who were there, how long they've been doing this. Every time I thought they were going to say, oh, you know, like two years, maybe this is my third time, something like that. And I think the first person said he had been there, coming there like consistently for seven years. It might have been nine. <laughs> and nine, right? And then the second person was like, oh, yeah, I've been coming here for eight years. Right. And I'm like, and this is on a volunteer basis. They've been coming consistently to this clinic to volunteer for seven, eight, nine years. That that was amazing to me. It, and it was every single person we talked to, not everyone, you know, made it into the episode, but every person said the same thing. And Jonathan Baum, the founder of the clinic, said they've never had someone come and not come back. You know, one of the things I I at least hope that people get from listening to that episode is to your point about the clinic that you went to afterwards. The primary goal of the podcast is to encourage people to take the next step on their pro bono journey, right? But at the same time, if you're listening and you are someone who is a decision maker at a firm or wherever who can who can sort of set up a clinic, you know, maybe you get some insight from listening to this episode about how it can help you do your clinic or how it can help you in other ways. So that that was that was really that's a really cool part of it too is when you see these things are really that are really, really well run. Hopefully people can glean some insights about that as well. That episode was was fantastic. I mean, I have so many things to say about it. One of the things that was really unique about it was this was the first time that we actually got to have somebody, in this case it was you, go out there and record live audio at the actual clinic itself. So mm-hmm. when you say, and I highly encourage everybody to just listen to that full episode, it is phenomenal. It really does give you a sense of actually being there. I think that that actually leads right into the third thing that I realized this year is that being in person with people is really fun and that I want both things in my life. I, I want both the ability to connect with people across the country. I mean, I'm in Chicago, Daniel, you're in New York. I worked with PLI for years and long before the pandemic, it's always been a 
video conference relationship. Uh, and, and so that's been fantastic. But also being able to come together in person, you get different amazing things come out of that. And so that's certainly how I felt about being at the Catton School Clinic with my recorder. And I, and I think it's how the folks at the clinic feel, too, because they've been able to really get back in person after having to be online during the pandemic. Uh, let's listen to Melissa Bartolome, who's the supervising attorney at the clinic, uh, talk about her observations about uh, being in person at the school. What is your favorite part about the clinic? So the pace of it, honestly, like I really like being able to reach maybe 20 clinics or 20 clients in two hours is a great feeling to really have that impact. I really like seeing people face to face, too. It was hard during the pandemic to not be able to be here. So coming back and seeing that the amount of clients that we're seeing has gone up, the engagement from the attorneys is still there. It's a great feeling. But that but that's not the only way we got back in person this year. We got to go to the Equal Justice Conference in Dallas you, me, Aaron Kinsella from the podcast team, and attended sessions, ran into so many former guests on the show, having strangers come up and say, I'm a huge fan. Give gave me some juice. Um, yeah. Who doesn't who doesn't like that? Right. And then I presented on two panels with folks from PLI and got talked into a story slam. Yeah, right. Like you needed a lot of talking into <laughs> to tell stories. That is a thing I realized is that I started. It was actually Ben Weinberg, who was a guest on our last episode of 2022, talking about appellate order of protection cases in Illinois. And Ben Weinberg was running the story slam. And Ben Weinberg is an amazing storyteller. Uh, I've known him for years. And uh, he sort of said, hey, we're, we're going to have this story slam and you need to tell stories. And I was like, no, no, no. And then as soon as you plant the idea in my head, it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you got to scratch that itch. What about you? What was the going to Dallas and the Equal Justice Conference like for you? It was a really great experience, honestly. Going back to what you said about being in person, it is nice to kind of get back to these in-person events. And really, it was great to be around the pro bono community, right? So sort of the people who are listening to the podcast, a lot of people who have been on the podcast. That as a producer was was great to see the people who are kind of involved in helping make this thing. So that was great. I mean, it was honestly fantastic really to see to see you doing your presentations and kind of doing your thing. Like, you know, I don't I know you might be a little bit humble about it, but you really were fantastic the way that you led both of those panels. And I thought both of them were fantastic. We also had another actually come to think of it, another PLI colleague, Ken Rosenblatt from our interactive learning center. He was on one of the panels as well with you. Both okay. panels were turned into podcast episodes. So that was really cool. Yeah. And the the one on managing vicarious trauma and thinking about how to train both staff lawyers and pro bono lawyers on how to manage vicarious trauma is one of our most popular episodes. I think it really hit a nerve, if you will, that it's a thing that people are thinking about and want help doing well. And so I was really gratified to see that people picked it up because we were a little nervous that saying, hey, if you do pro bono work, you might feel traumatized by it would drive people away. But it seemed to call people in. 
And and that was gratifying. Yeah. My personal feeling is that it's always great to sort of recognize things that can happen like that. And I think maybe a lot of other people resonated with that as well. I can imagine that when people do pro bono work, they can sort of imagine that there are going to be obstacles and challenges along the way. And maybe this is one of the things that they might encounter. And so it's great that people, if they are in that position, found the podcast and, and hopefully got something out of it. Absolutely. And the other panel that we did, which was with Aaron Kinsella from PLI and Mari Carmen Garza from Tahereh, was on ethical storytelling. And again, as we mentioned, it didn't take much to get me to tell a story at the Story Slam. But I changed the way I told that story because of the work that we had done in developing that presentation. It, it just really changed my thinking about the way that you talk about clients and the way that you talk about the work matters. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's obvious, but the, but the way that you choose to talk about it matters. And the tools that not me, but my partners on that panel brought to light and included in our presentation were incredibly helpful to me thinking about how do I want to be a pro bono storyteller? How do I want to approach it and how do I want to do it ethically and with a sense of justice? Uh, so even though technically I was one of the teachers, uh, I was definitely one of the learners. And I recommend anybody, especially if you are in the business of telling stories about pro bono, uh, but even if you're just doing the work and you want to think about how to be a force for equity and justice in the way you talk about it. Let's listen to a clip of Mari Carmen Garza from Tahereh. What do you think is the power that storytelling can hold for gender-based violence survivors? To be honest with you, it's really important to not use a story in a way that is re-traumatizing or where you are just asking for information and trying to get somebody to share a story who may not be ready. But when an individual is ready and they want to share their story so that what they experience could be of help to others, that is a little different. And again, even in those instances, the storytelling needs to be client-centered and has to be in a way that is empowering and uplifting not only to the individuals who are listening, but also to the client themselves. Many clients have told us, you know, sharing my story is part of the healing journey. Anybody should go listen to the ethical storytelling, but, but that's not what we called it. But anybody should go listen to the Centering Clients in Pro Bono Storytelling episode. Yes. I know it's challenging with the names sometimes because most people can imagine we go through several different names when we're sort of trying to figure out what the final name of the episode is going to be. <laughs> so it is kind of difficult to remember the exact title that we settled on. <laughs> if only, if only we had landed on a friends-like structure in the beginning. <laughs> the one about yes, ethical yep. storytelling, the one yep. about, yeah. Yeah.
Yeah. I agree. I encourage everybody to listen to that one. And for me, you know, again, as the non-lawyer, this one definitely struck a nerve with me as someone who, again, produces things like this podcast, right? And I'm lucky because you and Aaron are both on the podcast team. So this is something that's always being considered, that we're always considering when we develop new episodes. But for anybody else, you know, I, I would recommend to any comms team, you know, in any marketing department, I think this would be a great listen. So if you listen to the episode, you'll hear a little taste of what was what was presented in Dallas. I thought it was a fantastic it was and it was very heartwarming, honestly, to see my fellow colleagues uh, and also to meet Mari Carmen and and some of the other panelists. It was it was a wonderful experience. I, I can't wait to go back. Awesome. Also had the best some of the best barbecue in my life. Shout out to Pecan Lodge, Deep Ellum. Oh, that's the place you ate the night before we all got there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Note to self, get there early. Let Daniel pick the restaurant. Okay. All right, Daniel, anything else about our our last year in pro bono that's sitting with you? I think we did a great job of recapping some of the stories that stuck out to us this year. I want to emphasize, though, that every single story we do, I, you know, we, we, I personally and I think everybody would agree that we have put a lot of work and effort into all of these stories. And we're very, very proud of every single episode that we've done. And we've loved getting feedback from the audience about the episodes. And I know I am looking forward very much so to putting out even more content in 2024 and trying to get more people, like we say, to take that first step on their pro bono journey. So thank you, Lish, so much for being an amazing host. I want to thank the rest of our team as well. Aaron Kinsella, Luke Vermandel, Janet Siegel, Director of Pro Bono, Marin Addis from the Pro Bono team as well. It's been a, it's an awesome experience and can't wait for 2024. And I think it's going to be an exciting year in 2024, but we would love to have you help us make it exciting. So uh, reach out. If you're working on a project or there's something in your community that you'd like to see that story told, let us know about it. Let us know what we're doing that works. Let us know what we're doing that could be better. We're at info at pli.edu. And we would like to hear from you and rate and review the podcast. It really helps other people to find it. If you're a podcast listener, you've probably heard this a million times at the end of every podcast, but there is a reason it actually really does help to do a review and to do a rating. And so we encourage you, please write and review if you listen to this podcast. We also encourage listeners to check out our website, which is pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. You can see all of the all of our episode links. And we also have a sign up that you can sign up for if you want to receive updates about new Pursuing Justice releases and about other information related to pro bono. So if you go to pli.edu slash pro bono podcast, you can subscribe to that as well. Go forth, <laughs> do some pro bono, feel good about what you do, and always be thinking about how we could make our communities just a little bit better. All right. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. 
Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.